Introduction Part 2 of The Social Cancer, a complete English version of Noli Me Tangere from the Spanish of José Rizal by Charles Derbyshire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avaí in October 2011. Noli Me Tangere by José Rizal. Translator's Introduction, Part 2. And third came she who gives dark creeds their power, Silabat Paramasa, sorceress, draped fair in many lands as lowly faith, but ever juggling souls with rites and prayers, the keeper of those keys which lock up hells and open heavens. Wilt thou there, she said, put by our sacred books, dethrone our gods, unpeople all the temples, shaking down that law which feeds the priests and props the realm? But Buddha answered, What thou bidst me keep is form which passes, but the free truth stands, get thee unto thy darkness. Sir Edwin Arnold, The Light of Asia Ah, simple people, how little do you know the blessing that you enjoy? Neither hunger, nor nakedness, nor inclemency of the weather troubles you. With the payment of seven reals per year, you remain free of contributions. You do not have to close your houses with bolts. You do not fear that the district troopers will come in to lay waste your fields and trample you underfoot at your own firesides. You call Father the one who is in command over you. Perhaps there will come a time when you will be more civilized and you will break out in revolution, and you will wake terrified at the tumult of the riots and will see blood throwing through these quiet fields and gallows and guillotines erected in these squares which never yet have seen an execution. Thus moralized the Spanish traveller in 1842, just as that dolce farniente was drawing to its close. Already far-seeing men had begun to raise in the Spanish Parliament the question of the future of the Philippines, looking towards some definite programme for their care under modern conditions and for the adjustment of their relations with the mother country. But these were mere Cassandra voices. The horologe of time was striking for Rome's successor, as it did for Rome herself. Just where will come the outbreak after three centuries of mind repression and soul distortion, of forcing a growing subject into the straight jacket of medieval thought and action, of natural selection reversed by the constant elimination of native initiative and leadership, is indeed a curious study. That there will be an outbreak somewhere is as certain as that the plant will grow toward the light, even under the most unfavorable conditions, for man's nature is but the resultant of eternal forces that ceaselessly and irresistibly interplay about and upon him, and somewhere this resultant will express itself in thought or deed. After three centuries of Spanish ecclesiastical domination in the Philippines, it was to be expected that the wars would turn against their mentors the methods that had been used upon them, nor is it especially remarkable that there was a decided tendency in some parts to revert to primitive barbarism, but that concurrently a creative genius, a bard or a seer, should have been developed among a people who, as a whole, have hardly passed through the clan or village stage of society, 
can be regarded as little less than a psychological phenomenon, and provokes the perhaps presumptuous inquiry as to whether there may not be some things about our common human nature that the learned doctors have not yet included in their anthropometic diagrams. On the western shore of the Lake of Bay in the heart of the Philippines clusters the village of Calamba, first established by the Jesuit fathers in the early days of the conquest, and upon their expulsion in 1767 taken over by the crown, which later transferred it to the Dominicans, under whose care the fertile fields about it became one of the richest of the friar estates. It can hardly be called a town, even for the Philippines, but is rather a market village, set as it is at the outlet of the rich country of northern Batangas on the open waterway to Manila and the outside world. Around it flourish the green rice-fields, while Mount Makiling towers majestically near in her moods of cloud and sunshine, overlooking the picturesque curve of the shore and the rippling waters of the lake. Shadowy to the eastward gleam the purple crests of Banahao and Cristobal, and but a few miles to the southwestward dim thundering, seething, earth-rocking Taal mutters and moans of the world's birth-throes. It is the centre of a region rich in native lore and legend, as it sleeps through the dusty noons when the cacao leaves droop with the heat and dreams through the silvery nights, waking twice or thrice a week to the endless babble and ceaseless chatter of an oriental market, where the noisy throngs make of their trading as much a matter of pleasure and recreation as of business. Directly opposite this marketplace, in a house facing the village church, there was born in 1861 into the already large family of one of the more prosperous tenants on the Dominican estate, a boy, who was to combine in his person the finest traits of the Oriental character, with the best that Spanish and European culture could add, on whom would fall the burden of his people's woes to lead him over the Via Dolorosa of struggle and sacrifice, ending in his own destruction amid the crumbling ruins of the system whose disintegration he himself had done so much to compass. José Rizal Mercado y Alonso, as his name emerges from the confusion of Filipino nomenclature, was of Malay extraction, with some distant strains of Spanish and Chinese blood. His genealogy reveals several persons remarkable for intellect and independence of character, notably a Philippine, Eloise and Abelard, who, drawn together by their common enthusiasm for study and learning, became his maternal grandparents, as well as a great-uncle who was a traveller and student and who directed the boy's early studies. Thus, from the beginning, his training was exceptional, while his mind was stirred by the trouble already brewing in his community, and from the earliest hours of consciousness he saw about him the wrongs and injustices which overgrown power will ever develop in dealing with a weaker subject. One fact of his childhood, too, stands out clearly, well worthy of record. His mother seems to have been a woman of more than ordinary education for the time and place, and, pleased with the boy's quick intelligence, she taught him to read Spanish from a copy of the Vulgate in that language, which she had somehow managed to secure and keep in her possession, the old, old story of the woman and the book, repeated often enough under strange circumstances, but under none stranger than these. 
The boy's father was well-to-do, so he was sent at the age of eight to study in the new Jesuit school in Manila, not, however, before he had already inspired some awe in his simple neighbours by the facility with which he composed verses in his native tongue. He began his studies in a private house, while waiting for an opportunity to enter the Ateneo, as the Jesuit school is called, and while there he saw one of his tutors, Padre Burgos, hailed to an ignominious death on the garrote as a result of the affair of 1872. This made a deep impression on his childish mind, and, in fact, seems to have been one of the principal factors in moulding his ideas and shaping his career. That the effect upon him was lasting, and that his later judgment confirmed him in the belief that a great injustice had been done, are shown by the fact that his second important work, El Filibusterismo, written about 1891, and miscalled by himself a novel, for it is really a series of word-paintings constituting a terrific arraignment of the whole regime, was dedicated to the three priests executed in 1872, in these words. Religion, in refusing to degrade you, has placed in doubt the crime imputed to you. The government, in surrounding your case with mystery and shadow, gives reason for belief in some error, committed in fatal moments, and all the Philippines, in venerating your memory and calling you martyrs, in no way acknowledges your guilt. The only answer he ever received to this was eight Remington bullets fired into his back. In the Ateneo he quickly attracted attention and became a general favourite by his application to his studies, the poetic fervour with which he entered into all the exercises of religious devotion, and the gentleness of his character. He was from the first considered peculiar, for so the common mind regards everything that fails to fit the old formulas, being of a rather dreamy and reticent disposition, more inclined to reading Spanish romances than joining in the games of his schoolmates. And of all the literatures that could be placed in the hands of an imaginative child, what one would be more productive in a receptive mind of a fervid love of life and home and country and all that men hold dear, than that of the musical language of Castile, with its high colouring and passionate character? His activities were varied, for, in addition to his regular studies, he demonstrated considerable skill in wood-carving and wax-modelling, and during this period won several prizes for poetical compositions in Spanish, which, while sometimes juvenile in form and following closely after Spanish models, reveal at times flashes of thought and turns of expression that show distinct originality. Even in these early compositions there is that plaintive undertone, that minor chord of sadness, which pervades all his poems, reaching its fullest measure of pathos in the verses written in his death cell. He received a bachelor's degree, according to the Spanish system, in 1877, but continued advanced studies in agriculture at the Ateneo, at the same time that he was pursuing the course in philosophy in the Dominican University of Santo Tomas, where in 1879 he startled the learned doctors by a reference in a prize poem to the Philippines as his Patria, Fatherland. This political heresy on the part of a native of the islands was given no very serious attention at the time, being looked upon as the vagary of a schoolboy. 
but again in the following year by what seems a strange fatality he stirred the resentment of the friars especially the dominicans by winning over some of their number the first prize in a literary contest celebrated in honour of the author of don quixote the archaic instruction in santo tomas soon disgusted him and led to disagreements with the instructors and he turned to spain plans for his journey and his stay there had to be made with the utmost caution for it would hardly have fared well with his family had it become known that the son of a tenant on an estate which was a part of the university endowment was studying in europe he reached spanish territory first in barcelona the hotbed of radicalism where he heard a good deal of revolutionary talk which however seems to have made but little impression upon him for throughout his entire career breadth of thought and strength of character are revealed in his consistent opposition to all forms of violence in madrid he pursued the courses in medicine and philosophy but a fact of even more consequence than his proficiency in his regular work was his persistent study of languages and his omnivorous reading he was associated with the other Filipinos who were working in a somewhat spectacular way, misdirected rather than led by what may be styled the Spanish liberals, for more considerate treatment of the Philippines. But while he was among them, he was not of them, as his studious habits and reticent disposition would hardly have made him a favorite among those who were enjoying the broader and gayer life there. Moreover, he soon advanced far beyond them in thought by realizing that they were beginning at the wrong end of the labor, for even at that time he seems to have caught, by what must almost be looked upon as an inspiration of genius, since there was nothing apparent in his training that would have suggested it, the realization of the fact that hope for his people lay in bettering their condition, that any real benefit must begin with the benighted folk at home, that the introduction of reforms for which they were unprepared would be useless even dangerous to them this was not at all the popular idea amongst his associates and led to serious disagreements with their leaders for it was the way of toil and sacrifice without any of the excitement and glamour that came from drawing up magnificent plans and sending them back home with appeals for funds to carry on the propaganda for the most part banquets and entertainments to Spain's political leaders. His views, as revealed in his purely political writings, may be succinctly stated, for he had that faculty of expression which never leaves any room for doubt as to the meaning. His people had a natural right to grow and to develop, and any obstacles to such growth and development were to be removed. He realized that the masses of his countrymen were sunk deep in poverty and ignorance, cringing and crouching before political authority, crawling and groveling before religious superstition, but to him this was no subject for jest or indifferent neglect. It was a serious condition which should be ameliorated, and hope lay in working into the inert social mass the leaven of conscious individual effort toward the development of a distinctive, responsible personality. He was profoundly appreciative of all the good that Spain had done, but saw in this no inconsistency with the desire that this gratitude might be given cause to be ever on the increase, thereby uniting the Philippines with the mother country by the firm bonds of common ideas and interests, 
for his earlier writings breathe nothing but admiration, respect and loyalty for Spain and her more advanced institutions. The issue was clear to him, and he tried to keep it so. It was indeed administrative myopia, introduced largely by blind greed, which allowed the friar orders to confuse the objections to their repressive system with an attack upon Spanish sovereignty, thereby dragging matters from bad to worse, to engender ill-feeling and finally desperation. This narrow, selfish policy had about as much soundness in it as the idea upon which it was based, so often brought forward with what looks very suspiciously like a specious effort to cover mental indolence with a glittering generality, that the Filipino is only a grown-up child and needs a strong paternal government, an idea which entirely overlooks the natural fact that when an impressionable subject comes within the influence of a stronger force from a higher civilization, he is very likely to remain a child, perhaps a stunted one, as long as he is treated as such. There is about as much sense and justice in such logic as there would be in that of keeping a babe confined in swaddling bands, and then blaming it for not knowing how to walk. No creature will remain a healthy child forever, but, as Spain learned to her bitter cost, will be very prone, as the parents grow decrepit and it begins to feel its strength, to prove a troublesome subject to handle, thereby reversing the natural law suggested by the comparison, and bringing such Sancho Panza statecraft to flounder at last through as hopeless confusion to as absurd a conclusion as his own island government. Rizal was not one of those rabid, self-seeking revolutionists who would merely overthrow the government and maintain the old system with themselves in the privileged places of the former rulers, nor is he to be classed among the misguided enthusiasts who by their intemperate demands and immoderate conduct merely strengthen the hands of those in power. He realized fully that the restrictions under which the people had become accustomed to order their lives should be removed gradually as they advanced under suitable guidance and became capable of adjusting themselves to the new and better conditions. They should take all the good offered, from any source, especially that suited to their nature, which they could properly assimilate. No great patience was ever exhibited by him toward those of his countrymen, the most repulsive characters in his stories are such, who would make of themselves mere apes and mimes, decorating themselves with a veneer of questionable alien characteristics, but with no personality or stability of their own, presenting at best a spectacle to make devils laugh and angels weep, lacking even the hothouse product's virtue of being good to look upon. Reduced to a definite form, the wish of the more thoughtful in the new generation of Filipino leaders that was growing up was that the Philippine Islands be made a province of Spain with representation in the Cortes and the concomitant freedom of expression and criticism. All that was directly asked was some substantial participation in the management of local affairs and the curtailment of the arbitrary power of petty officials, especially of the friar curates, who constituted the chief obstacle to the education and development of the people. The friar orders were, however, all-powerful, not only in the Philippines, but also in Madrid, where they were not chary of making use of a part of their wealth to maintain their influence. 
the efforts of the Filipinos in Spain, while closely watched, do not seem to have been given any very serious attention, for the Spanish authorities, no doubt, realized that as long as the young man stayed in Madrid writing manifestos in a language which less than one percent of their countrymen could read, and spending their money on members of the Cortes, there could be little danger of trouble in the Philippines. Moreover, the Spanish ministers themselves appear to have been in sympathy with the more moderate wishes of the Filipinos, a fact indicated by the number of changes ordered from time to time in the Philippine administration. But they were powerless before the strength and local influence of the religious orders. So matters dragged their weary way along, until there was an unexpected and startling development, a David Goliath contest, and certainly no one but a genius could have polished the smooth stone that was to smite the giant. It is said that the idea of writing a novel depicting conditions in his native land first came to Rizal from a perusal of Eugene Sue's The Wandering Jew, while he was a student in Madrid, although the model for the greater part of it is plainly the delectable sketches in Don Quixote, for the author himself possessed in a remarkable degree that Cervantic touch which raises the commonplace, even the mean, into the highest regions of art. Not, however, until he had spent some time in Paris continuing his medical studies, and later in Germany, did anything definite result. But in 1887, Noli Metangere was printed in Berlin, in an establishment where the author is said to have worked part of his time as a compositor, in order to defray his expenses while he continued his studies. A limited edition was published through the financial aid extended by a Filipino associate and sent to Hong Kong, thence to be surreptitiously introduced into the Philippines. Noli me tangere, touch me not, at the time the work was written, had a peculiar fitness as a title. Not only was there an apt suggestion of a comparison with the common flower of that name, but the term is also applied in pathology to a malignant cancer which affects every bone and tissue in the body, and that this letter was in the author's mind would appear from the dedication and from the summing up of the Philippine situation in the final conversation between Ibarra and Elias. But in a letter written to a friend in Paris at the time, the author himself says that it was taken from the gospel scene where the risen Saviour appears to the Magdalene, to whom he addresses these words, a scene that has been the subject of several notable paintings. In this connection it is interesting to note what he himself thought of the work, and his frank statement of what he had tried to accomplish, made just as he was publishing it, Noli me tangere, an expression taken from the Gospel of St. Luke, means, touch me not. The book contains things of which no one up to the present time has spoken, for they are so sensitive that they have never suffered themselves to be touched by anyone whomsoever. For my own part, I have attempted to do what no one else has been willing to do. I have dared to answer the calumnities that have for centuries been heaped upon us and our country. I have written of the social condition and the life, of our beliefs, our hopes, our longings, our complaints and our sorrows. I have unmasked the hypocrisy which, under the cloak of religion, has come among us to impoverish and to brutalize us. 
I have distinguished the true religion from the false, from the superstition that traffics with the holy word to get money and to make us believe in absurdities for which Catholicism would blush if it ever knew of them. I have unveiled that which has been hidden behind the deceptive and dazzling words of our governments. I have told our countrymen of our mistakes, our vices, our faults, and our weak complacence with our miseries there. Where I have found virtue, I have spoken of it highly, in order to render it homage, and if I have not wept in speaking of our misfortunes, I have laughed over them, for no one would wish to weep with me over our woes, and laughter is ever the best means of concealing sorrow. The deeds that I have related are true, and have actually occurred. I can furnish proof of this. My book may have, and it does have, defects from an artistic and aesthetic point of view, this I do not deny, but no one can dispute the veracity of the facts presented. But while the primary purpose and first effect of the work was to crystallize anti-friar sentiment, the author has risen above a mere personal attack, which would give it only a temporary value and by portraying in so clear and sympathetic a way the life of his people has produced a piece of real literature of especial interest now as they are being swept into the newer day any fool can point out errors and defects if they are at all apparent and the persistent searching them out for their own sake is the surest mark of the vulpine mind but the author has cast aside all such petty considerations and whether consciously or not has left a work of permanent value to his own people, and of interest to all friends of humanity. If ever a fair land has been cursed with the wearisome breed of fault-finders, both indigenous and exotic, that land is the Philippines, so it is indeed refreshing to turn from the dreary waste of carping criticism, pragmatical, scientific analysis, and sneering half-truths, to a story pulsating with life, presenting the Filipino as a human being, with his virtues and his vices, his loves and hates, his hopes and fears. The publication of Noli Me Tangere suggests the reflection that the story of Achilles' heel is a myth only in form. The belief that any institution, system, organization or arrangement has reached an absolute form is about as far as human folly can go. The friar orders looked upon themselves as the sum of human achievement in man-driving and God-persuading, divinely appointed to rule, fixed in their power, far above suspicion. Yet they were obsessed by the sensitive, covered dread of exposure that ever lurks spectrally under Pharisaism's spacious robe, so when there appeared this work of a miserable Indian who dared to portray them and the conditions that their control produced exactly as they were, for the indefinable touch by which the author gives an air of unimpeachable veracity to his story is perhaps its greatest artistic merit, the effect upon the mercurial Spanish temperament was, to say the least, electric. The very audacity of the thing left the friars breathless. A committee of learned doctors from Santo Tomas, who were appointed to examine the work, unmercifully scored it as attacking everything from the state religion to the integrity of the Spanish dominions, so the circulation of it in the Philippines was, of course, strictly prohibited, which naturally made the demand for it greater. 
large sums were paid for single copies of which it might be remarked in passing the author himself received scarcely any part collections have ever had a curious habit of going astray in the philippines although the possession of a copy by a filipino usually meant summary imprisonment or deportation often with the concomitant confiscation of property for the benefit of some patriot the book was widely read among the leading families and had the desired effect of crystallizing the sentiment against the friars thus to pave the way for concerted action at last the idol had been flouted so all could attack it within a year after it had begun to circulate in the philippines a memorial was presented to the archbishop by quite a respectable part of the filipinos in manila respecting that the friar orders be expelled from the country but this resulted only in the deportation of every signer of the petition upon whom the government could lay hands they were scattered literally to the four corners of the earth some to the ladrone islands some to fernando po of the west coast of africa some to spanish prisons others to remote parts of the philippines meanwhile the author had returned to the philippines for a visit to his family during which time he was constantly attended by an officer of the civil guard detailed ostensibly as a bodyguard all his movements were closely watched and after a few months the captain-general advised him to leave the country at the same time requesting a copy of noli metangere saying that the excerpts submitted to him by the censor had awakened a desire to read the entire work rizal returned to europe by way of japan and the united states which did not seem to make any distinct impression upon him although it was only a little later that he predicted that when spain lost control of the philippines an eventuality he seemed to consider certain not far in the future the united states would be a probable successor returning to europe he spent some time in london preparing an edition of morga's successos de las filipinas a work published in mexico about sixteen o six by the principal actor in some of the most stirring scenes of the formative period of the philippine government it is a record of prime importance in philippine history and the resuscitation of it was no small service to the country rizal added notes tending to show that the filipinos had been possessed of considerable culture and civilization before the spanish conquest and he even intimidated that they had retrograded rather than advanced under spanish tutelage but such an extreme view must be ascribed to patriotic ardor for rizal himself though possessed of that intangible quality commonly known as genius and partly trained in northern europe is still in his own personality the strongest refutation of such a contention later in ghent he published el filibusterismo called by him a continuation of noli metangere but with which it really has no more connection than that some of the characters reappear and are disposed of there is almost no connected plot in it and hardly any action but there is the same incisive character drawing and clear etching of conditions that characterize the earlier work it is a maturer effort and a more forceful political argument hence it lacks the charm and simplicity which assign noli metangere to a pre-eminent place in philippine literature the light satire of the earlier work is replaced by bitter sarcasm delivered with deliberate intent 
for the iron had evidently entered his soul with broadening experience and the realization that justice at the hands of decadent Spain had been an iridescent dream of his youth. Nor had the Spanish authorities in the Philippines been idle, his relatives had been subjected to all the annoyances and irritations of petty persecution, eventually losing the greater part of their property, while some of them suffered deportation. In 1891 he returned to Hong Kong to practice medicine, in which profession he had remarkable success, even coming to be looked upon as a wizard by his simple countrymen, among whom circulated wonderful accounts of his magical powers. He was especially skilled in ophthalmology, and his first operation after returning from his studies in Europe was to restore his mother's sight by removing a cataract from one of her eyes, an achievement which no doubt formed the basis of marvellous tales. But the misfortunes of his people were ever the paramount consideration, so he wrote to the captain-general requesting permission to remove his numerous relatives to Borneo to establish a colony there, for which purpose liberal concessions had been offered him by the British government. The request was denied, and further stigmatized as an unpatriotic attempt to lessen the population of the Philippines when labor was already scarce. This was the answer he received to a reasonable petition, after the homes of his family, including his own birthplace, had been ruthlessly destroyed by military force, while a quarrel over ownership and rents was still pending in the courts. The captain-general at that time was Valeriano Weyler, the pitiless instrument of the reactionary forces manipulated by the monastic orders, he who was later sent to Cuba to introduce there the repressive measures which had apparently been so efficacious in the Philippines, thus to bring on the interference of the United States to end Spain's colonial power, all of which induces the reflection that there may still be deluded casuists who doubt the reality of Nemesis. Weyler was succeeded by Eulogio Despujols, who made sincere attempts to reform the administration and was quite popular with the Filipinos. In reply to repeated requests from Brizal to be permitted to return to the Philippines unmolested, a passport was finally granted to him and he set out for Manila. For this move on his part, in addition to the natural desire to be among his own people, two special reasons appear. He wished to investigate and stop, if possible, the unwarranted use of his name in taking up collections that always remained mysteriously unaccounted for, and he was drawn by a ruse deliberately planned and executed in that his mother was several times officiously arrested and hustled about as a common criminal in order to work upon the son's filial feelings and thus get him back within reach of the Spanish authority which, as subsequent events and later researches have shown, was the real intention in issuing the passport. Entirely unsuspecting any ulterior motive, however, in a few days after his arrival he convoked a motley gathering of Filipinos of all grades of the population, for he seems to have been only slightly acquainted among his own people, and not at all versed in the mazy Valpurgis dance of Philippine politics, and laid before it the constitution for a Liga Filipina, Philippine League, an organization looking toward greater unity among the Filipinos and cooperation for economic progress. 
this liga was no doubt the result of his observations in england and germany and despite its questionable form as a secret society for political and economic purposes was assuredly a step in the right direction but unfortunately its significance was beyond the comprehension of his countrymen most of whom saw in it only an opportunity for harassing the spanish government for which all were ready enough all his movements were closely watched and a few days after his return he was arrested on the charge of having seditious literature in his baggage the friars were already clamouring for his blood but despujols seems to have been more in sympathy with rizal than with the man whose tool he found himself forced to be without trial rizal was ordered deported to dapitan a small settlement on the northern coast of mindanao the decree ordering his deportation and the destruction of all copies of his books to be found in the philippines is a marvel of sophistry since in the words of a spanish writer of the time in this document we do not know which to wonder at most the ingenuousness of the governor-general for in this decree he implicitly acknowledges his weakness and proneness to error or the candour of rizal who believed that all the way was strewn with roses but it is quite evident that despujols was playing a double game of which he seems to have been rather ashamed for he gave strict orders that copies of the decree should be withheld from rizal in dapitan rizal gave himself up to his studies and such medical practice as sought him out in that remote spot for the fame of his skill was widely extended and he was allowed to live unmolested under parole that he would make no attempts to escape in company with a jesuit missionary he gathered about him a number of native boys and conducted a practical school on the german plan at the same time indulging in religious polemics with his jesuit acquaintances by correspondence and working fitfully on some compositions which were never completed noteworthy among them being a study in english of the tagalog verb but while he was living thus quietly in dapitan events that were to determine his fate were misshaping themselves in manila the stone had been loosened on the mountainside and was bounding on in mad career far beyond his control end of introduction part 2